Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to the best of my time capsule 2022. Yes, in the past year, we've released over 100 episodes where our guests have revealed the five things from their life that they'd like to put in a time capsule. And in case you missed them, here's your chance to hear some of our favorite bits from some of our favorite guests. Elsewhere, of course, things have been incredibly uneventful in 2022. There's nothing much happened, actually. So it's lucky that at least the wonderful people we've had on my time capsule have been entertaining. But maybe none more so than the brilliant Joe Pasquale. So let's start with him, shall we? I would be daft not to. I was doing a summer season and I had to go and meet the mayor. As you know, in these summer shows, you have opening night and then, especially in the seaside towns... You'd have the local gentry there. Yeah. And they'd have a, you know, a sausage on a stick around the back afterwards. And uh, the mayor was there, and he was fine. Everybody was fine. Loads and loads of people there, different councillors and a couple of local press. And the mayor was chatting to me, and he said, my wife's a huge fan of yours. Would you, would you say hello to her? Would you come say hello to my wife? And <laughs> Patsy. She's lovely. You'll love my wife, Patsy. Please come say hello to Patsy. <laughs> so I said, yeah, where is she? She said, well, she's normally at the buffet. She likes her food. So I'm okay, so of course there's this great big biffer. I'm going to say biffer now. Great big biffer at the, <laughs> at the, uh, at the buffer. I've heard biffer for years. Have you not? No. Honestly, she was massive, this woman. Right? Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say, but she was. There's no way of getting around it. She was. She was <laughs> right. You couldn't get around her? Oh, no, no, she was a roundabout. She was. She was, <laughs> she was, she was a large lady, and, but she liked the food, which is fair enough. Anyway, she's over there, so come and I'll take you over. I'll leave you with her. So I hate it when people leave you. I've got established a relationship with him. Mm. Nair's going to leave me with his wife, and I don't know what this is going to be like. don't know her. I know him. I've been with him for five minutes. I can deal with him. He's fine. But Patsy, don't know anything about Patsy at all. 
So anyway, I go over there and uh, he, he takes me, oh, there's Patsy. And she's, oh, she's like, oh, like this, oh. <laughs> and she's got a plate full of stuff piled up and paper plate. And because it's paper, it's not supporting what she's got on the plate. <laughs> and it's all coming off the edges and she's losing her crisps and the peanuts are coming off. And the sausage is kind of a bit of cheese and pineapple. She says, oh, don't lose that. It's my favourite. And, uh, and she's not even talking to me. She's just saving the food, right? <laughs> it was like Titanic. She's there and she's like, yeah, it was like Rose and Jack. Pump. No, no, come back. And she's eating away as she's talking to me. And I just tell her how much she enjoyed the show and what telly show she's doing, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And she's spitting. She's doing Derek Jameson everywhere. And, <laughs> and it's all going. And then she starts eating the volivant. She's talking to me. And she holds the volivant up to her mouth. And I hadn't noticed it before. But I noticed as she's held it up to her mouth, I noticed there's a hair. It's a big hair on the volivant. I thought, oh, no. Mm. She eats this, and she's going to gag on it. She goes, and it'll be like, I'm a furball. I'll have to do the high neck manoeuvre. And I could see it all (laughs) panning out in front of it. No, I can't let her eat this one. I've got to stop her. And I went, "Um, before you eat that, Mrs. Mount, uh, there's a hair on on your... And as I grabbed it, and as I grabbed it and pulled it, her top lip came away with the hair. And uh, and I thought, oh no! And then and the look of shock on her face, right? And she put the plate down like that, and just put a hand over it like that, and then ran away from me. Um, oh uh, no! So I, I never, I can't look a oh, no. in the face ever again. The lovely Joe Pasquale there, with a warning about eating with strangers. Actually, I know what he means. I went to a Buddhist restaurant the other night called Karma. There was no menu. You just got what you deserved. Right, our next clip is from an episode that went out in January 2022, and it features one of Britain's most popular TV presenters, Fern Britton, typically extolling the virtues of kitchen towels. Look, I just listen. They decide what we talk about, okay? I've been having a think about this. You know, people always say the best thing since sliced bread. No, I think it's that something has to be very good to be better than kitchen towel. <laughs> you know, paper towel, kitchen towel, absolutely vital. I have at least three rolls on the go in each corner of the kitchen. It goes, for instance, inside the microwave, particularly when you're doing porridge or baked beans, and one that inevitably all spills over. Your kitchen towel is there. Fern, I've never thought of that. Exactly. I feel like an idiot. Well, yeah, just, you know, so that's number one. Number two, the cats, uh, we now have three. One's 13, one's six, and the other one's 14 weeks. And they're very, very sweet, uh, obviously. But the one who's 14, 13, 14, he is currently, well, let's just say he's not so good and has decided to just be in continence wherever he stands. But if you constantly have a roll of kitchen towel and put it under him wherever he is, Perfect. That's that sorted out. Also under their food bowls, because they like to spread it everywhere. So that's all neatly wrapped up. And I'm thinking kitchen towel, it's only a bit of flimsy paper that's probably been recycled a few times anyway, and will rot down. This is quite a good thing. Yeah. You know, when you've got the big frying pan or the roasting tin and it's full of grease and oil, some people put that down the sink, which is why we get the fatbergs. If you let it just solidify, swoop it out with some kitchen towel, pop it in the bin, you're done. You see where I'm going with this? I feel like I'm back on this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. And (laughs) women in particular, or could be anybody, but I'm just suggesting. So (laughs) on my dressing table, you know how easy it is to get makeup all over the place 
what do you put on top of the dressing table? Lovely couple of sheets of <laughs> Then you can clean your brushes on it. You know, you can wipe off mascara. It's all there, into the bin, done. And just honestly, kitchen towel has changed the world. <laughs> yes, I'm going to agree with everything you say. Yeah. And you will be doing the microwave trick now. I know you will. I will be. And do you know what? I sometimes play dame in pantomime and I'm going to put down paper towel as well. Because we all put a hand towel down, don't we, to put paper on. Then you've got to wash that. No, you always just throw it away. It's so full of makeup. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I just said, no, kitchen towel in the car. I mean, someone is inevitably going to be sick or they're eating a McDonald's and it's all just have the kitchen towel on a tray, on a tray. Say you're setting up a tea tray and there's a teapot and the milk and a couple of mugs. Inevitably, it's going to spill when you pour it. Kitchen towel underneath. Out. <laughs> it solves out every problem, doesn't it? You can't do that with sliced bread. That's what I'm saying. No. So the best thing before and since is definitely kitchen towel. Correct. Okay. Good. I accept that argument entirely. Thank you. Have you tried the stuff that they always advertise as being stronger and lasting longer? Well, that's the one I use because that's the best. The others kind of disintegrate a bit like loo paper, which is built to disintegrate. Now, if you lose loo paper on a pool of water that's fallen, it'll all disintegrate. Mm. No, no, you, you've got to get the best kitchen towel. And, it, you know, there's big rolls. <laughs> It's very economical because you don't have to use twice as much. <laughs> okay? Yep. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> yes, thank you, Fern. A lesson for us all there, I think. That too much TV presenting will make you go slightly mad. Right. No joke from me here. I'll leave it to an expert. Our very first guest of 2022, the amazing Freddie Parrot-Faced Davies. Peter Chelstermore used to tell the story of, of um, the actor ringing his digs on the Saturday night. He said, is it Mrs. Johnson? She said, yeah. He said, would you um, take my potatoes? He said, they're under my bed upstairs. Would you take them, peel them, and blanch them for about 10 minutes? She said, you are. He said, would you take the potatoes under my bed in a bag from Waitrose, and would you peeled them and blanched them about half past ten for about ten minutes and she said you are she said I'll boil the fuckers <laughs> there you go that's how to tell a joke Freddie Davis there 60 odd years in the business and still going strong right next up we have a story from the English actor who's made a name for himself in Hollywood Jim Piddock Jim's been in loads of amazing things over the years, from Lethal Weapon 2 and Independence Day to Austin Powers, the brilliant Best in Show, and hundreds of major TV shows like Designated Survivor, ER and The Royals. And his autobiographical work, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, was released earlier this year. But here he is telling the astonishing and moving story of adopting his daughter. After... When I got married, we, 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 after about five years, we decided we wanted to have kids. And for various reasons, we couldn't get pregnant. And so we went through all that infertility stuff. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people listening have gone through this. And, I mean, it's, whoa, it's, it's, uh, 
I had to inject my my then wife with various things, and I did discover that I, I actually like giving injections rather than getting them. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed that, and I took so much verbal abuse doing so. And you have to then you do weird stuff. I remember driving over Coldwater Canyon with a vial of my sperm <laughs> to the clinic, and thinking, if I got into an accident. <laughs> How the hell do I explain when the officer says, excuse me, sir, why is the semen all over your upholstery? <laughs> uh, but luckily I didn't get into an accident. Um, so I tried everything and had a couple of miscarriages, which um, is a whole other story. And, mm. um, you know, it's a weird thing, miscarriages, because it's, it's, a, it's a, a loss and a death, but you can't mourn it in the same way. It's sort of, it's like the idea of something has died as opposed to the reality mm-hmm. of it. And it. But it's still... It's still a grieving process, so we we went through two of those. It's an extraordinarily broadly shared experience as well. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of people, and it's not talked about that much. There's no kind of, you don't hear about grieving sessions for people who have had miscarriages. Um, Anyway, we we finally got to the point where it was just not going to happen. It was partly age and whatever, incompatibility of this and that and the other. But we decided to adopt. That was an interesting moment too in me because... I didn't know many people adopted growing up. I think I knew one at my school and that was it. Mm. So it was an alien thing to me. And I, and I was like, well, at first I was slightly like, well, do I want to do that? And then I kind of thought it through and, and processed it. And I went, why does one want to have children from one's own body or one's own bloodline? When, to be honest, a lot of the things one hates in oneself, when you look in the mirror <laughs> genetically, <laughs> are things that you inherited from your birth parents. Yes. You and it's also hanging on to an ego thing. It's like a little mini me. And and then once I got to the idea that I actually just wanted a child and it didn't matter where the child came from, I wanted that. And I, it was a physiological thing for me, like when women get broody. I was literally going into supermarkets and this will sound weird, <laughs> but looking at children. Uh, but I was looking at kids running around playing with the parents and, and feeling this, I really want to have a child. Mm. And so we decided to adopt and we, 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 we registered with a lawyer and um, we'd sort of, a couple of things came up and, and, and they weren't right for us or whatever. And then heard nothing for months and months and months. And uh, I was lying in bed on May the 1st in 1994 at seven o'clock, just sort of half awake and the phone rang and I was like, who the fuck is calling at this time? Uh, and I went into the other room to answer it and it was the lawyer. And he said, how quickly can you get up to Santa Barbara? And I said, well, I just got up at seven something. And he said, well, this young lady came in last night and she uh, gave birth to a child that she had hidden from her parents and everybody and she already has a, a child and, and, and she knows that she can't raise it the way she'd like to. Mm-hmm. And she's picked your, you do, you do like a, a file, a picture resume and a, a sort of proposal. Mm. And the pictures are in there and, and you're who you are. And she's picked your, your profile to be the prospective, the possible adoptive parents. Yes. So I quickly woke Margaret up and, and we got in the car probably 10 minutes later, and drove up to Santa Barbara. And literally, while I was, uh, I think Margaret was driving, I was going through this uh, baby book, you know, <laughs> what to because if this happens, we're going to be parents fairly soon. And we got to the hospital about two hours later. And um, we met the birth mother. At the same time, she was seeing the baby for the first time. Good Lord. Which is... Uh, <laughs> Getting emotional t- talking about it. Um, it's 
highly charged moment. Um, but we, we both instantly took to her. The mother was someone we went in another lifetime. She would have been a friend of ours. She, we hit it off immediately. And we both sort of met the baby at the same time. The baby then went back into the, the kind of, um, it's not an incubator, but where, where they keep the babies. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called now. And we talked to her and, and found out the circumstances. And um, it was incredibly, incredibly emotional. Uh, she bared her soul, we bared us. And we knew that it was right. And um, so we kind of went outside and uh, we sort of said, well, obviously this is going to work. And she said, I'd love you to, to take care of her. And, and the wonderful thing was that she'd said the reason that she chose our profile was there was some photos we had in there. And I'd included one of a family Christmas lunch with our families wearing silly hats after <laughs> pulling Christmas crackers. And apparently the birth mother had had those when she was a child. And she said, I want that for my child. Oh, how marvellous. And it was a photo we put in we, and then took out and then put back in again because we thought, oh, no, it's part of who we are. More mm. And she chose us because of those silly hats. And so we then went back and did the paperwork. And uh, I... Uh, <laughs> I went, literally had to pay her medical expenses. And so I put my baby on a, on a, on a MasterCard. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to get the miles for this, which is pretty good. Um, however, I didn't use it as a tax write-off, so I, I'm not that shameless. No. <laughs> um, but we became parents within a space of... But by 1 p.m., we were her parents. Good Lord. And the moment that was extraordinary, that visceral moment where the nurse handed me her for the first time, Mm-hmm. And uh, the baby, I mean, our newborn baby, she was not even 24 hours old. You know, they had their eyes closed usually. And, and I held her and, and um, her eyes opened and she looked straight at me and I was looking at her. And there was a connection there that you just go, you can't describe. I mean, it's, it's uh, it, and I went, I'm her father. Mm. I knew it. Mm. And, and I hope on some level she could say, and go, that's my father. And so we literally then went to a sort of supermarket around the a big store and had to buy a baby seat, <laughs> uh, all the things yeah. to, for, for a baby, clothes. We had to buy her a Minnie Mouse baby suit. <laughs> and we drove home with her. And so we became Insta parents. That's amazing. So that date for me is the most important date of my life. What a beautiful tale there from Jim Piddock. Of course, you can listen to any of these episodes in full anytime you like. And this next clip is from an episode I would highly recommend. Well, let's be honest, I would do. I made it. Still, nobody's going to argue with me once they've heard Cheryl Baker talk about running the London Marathon, are they? And the whole experience was fantastic. The London Marathon attracts the most wonderful support everywhere you go. And also you've got fantastic landmarks, you know, to see. And honestly, it was incredible. The whole thing, the whole event, the feeling it gave me, the warmth it gave me, because we had our names on our shirts. And go on, Cheryl, go on. The pink ladies, we had pink shirts. Go on, the pink ladies. And really encouragement and people offering you things like a cheese sandwich and and you take um, a donut just because they want you to keep going and loads of dolly mixtures, obviously. And then you come down Horse Cars Parade and you know that you're you're just about to turn into the Mall with Buckingham Pads behind you. So you run down 
you get to Buckingham Palace, you turn right, and there, either side, the masses of people cheering, you see the finish line, and you see there's, a, there's also um, a huge screen. You're running towards yourself because you see yourself on the screen. And the commentator picks up the numbers of everyone who's running around there and says, here she comes, blah, 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 here's her. And they're, oh, Cheryl Baker. And then he played a bit of making your mind up. Ah, brilliant. Oh, all of a sudden, you haven't just run 26 miles. You've just started. You're full of energy. If you ever see, I mean, watch the end of the marathon. The people that are running at the end are proper running full out because of the elation you're feeling. You've finished this crazy thing that no one should ever have to do, run 26 miles, ridiculous. And then as I was running towards the, you know, the, the end and there's this gantry at the top and people were standing at the top, there was Richard Branson because it was the Virgin London Marathon. And he went, Cheryl, Cheryl. And I went, oh, Richard. And uh, I said, can I have two tickets to America for a charity? And he went, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. And this, this is put round your neck. <sighs> and there's people there ready to rub your aching muscles if you need to. And mm-hmm. they give you a goodie bag. And, and then your family are there. And, oh, it's just wonderful. It's definitely one of the top five things I've ever done in my life. Cheryl Baker there, running the London Marathon. Actually, I saw the London Marathon this year. I saw a man dressed as a chicken being chased by a man dressed as an egg. I thought, hmm, that'll be interesting. Of course, one of our guests this year was involved in loads of races, but it wasn't him doing the running. Richard Pittman, the jump jockey and horse racing pundit, rode 427 winners in his career. But there's one race that he never quite managed to win. If you're going to come second, coming second to Red Rum, that's got to be acceptable, isn't it? Yeah. I can see the look on your face. Well... I apologise. I apologise. No, no, no. We talk about it all the time. It's amazing that 47 years later, we're still talking about it. And in fact, that Crisp is such an extraordinarily famous horse. Yes. But if I can just go back a bit, I was actually second in the National twice. And oh, no one no. remembers the first one. Oh, Lord, sorry. it was an outsider for one of the first female trainers... And it was called Steel Bridge, and it was second to a horse called Highland Wedding. But I was beaten 10 lengths, so no hard luck stories. Mm. But in my view, it was the best ride I've ever given a horse because he was a no-hoper. I went round the inside where the brave men go because the fences are hot, the drops are more, the corners are sharper. Mm. There's more danger of the other horses coming in on you, you know. But I went round there on this, what was really a no-hoper to most people except the owner, and I went round scraping the paint off the rails on my boots. I was so tight. And he jumped for fun. He loved it, you know, and finished second. And, and I think that was one of my greatest rides. But the one you're referring to, Chris Bostrin, he was an Australian champion. And they were lumping so much weight on him in Australia. The owner who had bred him said, this is not fair on this horse. Keep lumping more and more weight. It'll break his heart. So he sent him to us. And he won the champion two-mile chase at Cheltenham by 20 lengths. And remember, we're in the national then, not then, but two years later, four and a half miles. You know, for a two-miler to be in a four and a half-mile race, it was a big ask. Plus, he was so good, he had 12 stone. And the eventual winner, Red Rum, had 10 stone five. So nearly two stone difference. And we discussed the race, and he was so exuberant at his jumps. When he saw a jump, he would quicken of his own volition. 
He would jump it low and fast. He'd be galloping before he hit the ground. And we went well clear, not immediately, but I jumped out first. And he slowly got in front further and further. And by the time we jumped the water jump with a circuit to go, we jumped 16 fences. We were 30 lengths clear. Wow. And my, I cannot explain. Well, I can Normally, the noise in a Grand National with 40 runners, 40 jockeys, the, the, the public address blaring all the way around, you know, it's very noisy. Here, absolute quiet, because <laughs> I was on my own, totally. I couldn't hear them behind me. And so I, I've gone on the second circuit, and there are holes in the fences where horses have plowed through and fallen. And then I saw one jockey standing by the rails watching the race, holding the bridle. No horse. He was just <laughs> holding the bridle. The horse had gone. <laughs> And they're all shouting encouragement. And I got to Beecher's Brook, which is this big drop. And the public address was being done by a, a great Irishman, no longer was called Michael O'Hare. And I was listening to the commentary, you see, rather than looking around, listening to the commentary. And I heard going to Beecher's Brook, O'Hare saying, And Richard Pittman is 25 lengths clear. He's way ahead of the pack. Red Rum is coming out, but Fetch is having to kick him. I thought, that'll do me, but yeah. I must conserve stamina because we don't know if he'll get to the end you see so i went another jump and there was one of the jockeys who'd lined up who'd fallen and he was sitting there like an indian in those john wayne films on the chief on top of the mountain while he sent his braves down to fight and there was was with his arms folded you see the horse picking grass and he said actually richard you're 33 and a half lengths clear kick on and you'll win and i thought no that's exactly what i'm not going to do because of stamina so every time we jumped, I took hold of Crisp's head and tried to conserve it. We jumped across the corner at the canal turn, saving at least three lengths. Mm. So we're doing everything we can to conserve energy. And still, going to the second last, I could not hear another horse. But the ground was firm, so therefore you hear drum, 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 drum of the hoofbeats, you see. And I just going to the second last, I heard the first hoofbeat. And then I heard... The horse, I didn't know what it was at the time, exhaling, and his nostrils flapped. It's called a high blower. So every time he exhaled, which is every stride, you'd hear, so drum, drum, getting louder and louder. And I heard the tannoy, it was red rum coming, but I'm, I'm still way in front, you see. And he jumped the last, and everything fell apart. You know, his stamina fell out like a leaky bucket uh, and like he was a horse with loppy ears that means they're not pricked up high they were half cast and even his ears went uh, now if you haven't got the strength to keep your ears up you've gone to the bottom of the barrel <laughs> and i made a stupid error i picked the stick up i thought i've got to wake him up and i whacked him around the backside he was a big heavy horse he was probably 620 kilos heavy horse and by taking my hand off to give him a smack He's fallen away. I should have kept hold of him and just kept him balanced to mm. get round to the elbow. The run-in is 494 yards, and we were in front for 492 of them. Oh. And I could hear Red Rum coming, but Fletcher, who rode him, very clever. Instead of coming up close to me, which would have galvanized my horse, even though he's dead on his feet, he challenged very wide. I could hear him getting louder and louder, and then I saw his head two strides from the winning post. So, elation to desolation. Uh, but not for long. No. Because I'd had a great ride. That's the attitude, Richard. We've all had bad luck with horse racing over the years. I once backed a horse at 20 to 1. 
didn't finish running till quarter past four. And on that classic, I think it's probably time to take an ad break. We'll be back soon with more My Time Capsule 2022. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. I hope you all made use of the ad break to do some other activity. Uh, of course, while still listening to the ads. You know, prepare a meal, clean the bathroom, do some exercise. I did some exercise for people who hate exercising. Yeah, what I like to call diddly squats. <clears throat> Moving on quickly, we continue our audible amble through the past year with the wonderful actor Sanjeev Baskar, with a very fond memory from his childhood and its rumbling repercussions throughout the rest of his life. So my first one that I'm putting in is my bedroom from when I was 14. So I was brought up above a laundrette. Uh, we had a maisonette above a laundrette in West London. And the bedroom wasn't great at all. I mean, it was small. It had one small gas fire and it was at the top of the house. But it, more specifically, it's my bedroom walls when I was 14. Right. Because I, I often think about the posters I had on my walls as an indication of who I was at 14 or what I was interested in. Mm. And I had, and I still remember it really clearly, I had a, um, I had lots of film-related things. So I had a Saturday Night Fever poster. I had uh, posters of Roger Moore as James Bond. Mm -hmm. I had the Beatles, I had Elvis. I had these A5 kind of, um, lots of A5 pictures, postcard-style pictures of scenes from uh, Some Like It Hot, Bringing Up Baby was on there, Laurel and Hardy, Chaplin, and there was Clint Eastwood and James Dean and Bruce Lee and, you know, people that were kind of iconic in the 70s. Muhammad Ali was on there. And that, when I think about it now, was my, you know, fantasy space. That was yeah. the world that I wanted to live in and... <laughs> 
you know, I connected with and was escapism. And it was as far from, you know, a small, cold bedroom at the top of a maisonette in Hounslow uh, as you could get that world. And I think quite often now, I think about how many of those people on those posters I've met and also how many of them became friends. And it blows my 14-year-old's mind. Oh, I bet it does. Me just telling you now does that. Mm. And it's made me feel um, incredibly grateful and lucky for the journey that I've had. And so, in a way, I can never feel unlucky. I, you know, if I you know, don't get a job or I get a bit ill or I lose some money or, you know, something doesn't go right, it doesn't make me an unlucky person because I'm the person who, when I was 14, staring at this wall of this alternative universe, I kind of think, wow, you know, I've, I've met, I met three of the Beatles, <laughs> didn't meet John Lennon. You know, Paul knows who I am, which is kind of extraordinary to me. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I'd never met Elvis, but I had, I've met Priscilla Presley a couple of times. And Roger Moore became a friend, which is mind blowing to me. There was, I had a Life of Brian poster. So I got to know the Pythons. Yeah. Uh, some of them are friends. And Elvis Costello was on there. He's a friend. And so it's just this extraordinary, extraordinary template of my own journey and where it started. And I hope it's it makes me humble because that journey from being 14 in a very kind of, you know, insular and kind of challenging times, if you're a young Asian kid in the 70s particularly, yeah. to having met these people and some becoming friends has, I think, has got very little to do with me. I think it's just been, you know, an incredibly benevolent universe. I love the idea of a benevolent universe. It certainly must have felt fairly benevolent to Graham Fellows, my next guest. He's become famous twice in his life. Once as the brilliant comedy character John Shuttleworth, a stroke of genius, clearly, and before that, as another John, Jilted John, with whom he had the classic punk hit, Gordon is a Moron. Jilted John was quite quick while he was still at college. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was the first term of, of drama college in um, wow. Manchester. It was the Manchester Poly then. Mm -hmm. It's now the, yeah, something else. It's a university. But I've got a diploma in theatre. You've probably got a degree, haven't you, Mike? <laughs> only just. I'm, only just. <laughs> well, but I loved it, yeah. Uh, but I, in the first term of the Manchester Poly drama school in that autumn 77, I was quite into punk. You know, the Sex Pistols and Stranglers and the Buzzcocks. They were... You know, I thought they were very cool because they were mm. from Manchester. And um, so I, I just decided to write my own punk song as a sort of spoof. I can't pretend I was a full-time punk. I was one of those weekend punks. I, I took my <laughs> earrings out at night. And, um, <laughs> yeah, but, but it just happened um, totally by accident. And I was very lucky. It just slid into the charts of its own momentum uh john peel picked it up i mean i was so naive about this I, I i sort of went to a record shop in the area and said do you know any punk record labels and they said oh yeah the stiff records oh and there's one down the road called rabid records and so i took this quarter inch tape that i'd made of a demo of it mm. of the song jilted john to them and um and played it to them and they went oh yeah okay uh, maybe 
and and it did happen uh, incredibly quickly. Uh, and I started doing gigs to, as Jill to John with it with a band to get my equity card because that was mm-hmm. you probably remember sort of of an age, aren't we? Yes. That's what you did then to how how you got your equity card. But it, it was it was great fun. I mean, I was. Um, hang on, we may have come on to our second time capsule. We've kind of touched on it. Yeah, my second item is an acoustic guitar that was lying around in the canteen of the Manchester Poly School of Theatre where I went to drama school mm-hmm. in 77. And people used to just sort of play it and um, then put it down and go to their drama class. It was just, it was a battered old guitar lying around. And I picked it up one day and I couldn't play any chords. Someone, uh, I think a, a musician, he must have been, he said, look, if you tune it to a, a chord, an open chord, then you can just put your finger across on the frets and you can make chords that way. So I did, and I just put one finger on the fifth fret and it went, I saw a strumming, I went, and the song had written itself almost. Well, the intro had. Yeah. So I, I'm very grateful to that guitar. And so are we, Graham. Gordon is a Moron, a song that was included in nearly every holiday compilation tape I ever made. One of the most extraordinary guests we've had on this year is one of the most successful stand-up comedians in the country and the host of Mock the Week, Dara O'Brien, who seems to have the ability to talk about everything and nothing at the same time. Still, whatever he's talking about, it's always entertaining. Okay, so we're going to talk about Five things that you've chosen to put into a time capsule, Dara. Yes, absolutely. Are we go? I mean, enjoy a podcast, as you know. That's that is the uh, the amount of times I've been doing a podcast and I've gone. I've been five minutes in the studio just chatting in there, going, "Oh, is this is is this this is a very informal." <laughs> Form of broadcasting. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's like a red light and a man going five four, and then the fingers. <laughs> and then you stop saying fuck. That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> look, you know. I mean, and I I say fuck all the time. I may put that into the uh, time capsule. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the Irish freedom to say fuck. Anyway, sorry. If we go, let's go. Let's go. Okay, fine. So, uh, well, I'll just let you do it. You tell me what your first item is. Oh yeah. Look, the, it was interesting because because it, it is quite a, it's quite a brief. Um, this in some ways. It, I mean, it's homework. I don't be, don't be doing homework for these things uh, but I think there has to be some kind of placing it in, in the grounds of reality like where there has to be something that uh, you know you can actually fit into a capsule I know people put in mountain ranges yes believe or no it has to be a thing that genuinely goes in somewhere the, uh, okay it is very much what you want it to be look that's fine but I'm setting rules for everyone on this one right so this, from okay. here on in here on in <laughs> it has to be a thing that genuinely fits into a capsule and triggers memories you can't yes. just for the sake of well I'd like to put you know world peace in or or I'd like to put, and I want to see it, and I want to measure it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I no, I genuinely, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a capsule for you out of some spare wood that we have, or a, okay. you know, a cardboard box or something that has to be recycled. It has to go into the into the box, like the. Yeah. Like, it's right. partly because, in terms of um, trips down memory lane and stuff, a lot of the things that people mention right, are things that oh, I think I think they'll survive, mate. I think the music of the Beatles will get, will be they'll be sufficient. It's not like oh, thank heavens, this one guy put that in a box because otherwise that was gone. Thanks yeah. for your help. Yes. Yeah, I know, because I mean we just we mislaid all the other copies of the Beatles music. <laughs> and luckily you did that. Like whatever the uh, Oh really? Oh, all contemporary art. Okay, fine. Yeah, I think thank thank you for, for, for keeping an archive of that because otherwise it all got wiped out in the comet uh, landing. But, uh, but so 
I, I think it is okay to, to for it to be small and it to be presumably personal and, and a thing because I, look, I get the trip down memory lane thing. <laughs> this is we're recording this in January, which is tax time. <laughs> Yeah. And so I find myself like on a floor of the office I'm in at the moment, spread out with all the stuff. You know, you do, I don't know what system you have. Maybe you've got a better system than I do with the, uh, but I, everything goes onto the floor and then gets put into piles. Uh, and this year's pile, last year's pile, uh, Sterling pile, Euro pile, um, all the, you know, <laughs> something I can, I'm allowed actually take a, a claim, things I'm not allowed to claim, but I've got to go through them all. Yeah. And, I do sit there and I go, oh, that was a lovely afternoon. <laughs> I, I open things up and I go, oh, that was really nice. I, I, I was very tempted about all of my receipts in as, because they do find myself going, oh, do you remember the time we went for lunch? And, oh, well, I can't turn it back off. Those, yeah. those are a nice memory. Like, whatever. Yeah. So you do <laughs> find yourself, like I found a, a receipt for a plane that I'd hired. This is not a thing I do normally, but we were in Cape Cod hmm. um, about a year and a half ago. And you could, for I think it's like for $300, get a guy to go in a biplane and he would fly around the Cape and zoom over your hotel. And then he dropped down and said, look, there's a great white shark. And he pointed down and there was, a, there was, a, there was actually a small school of great white sharks because they get that a lot in Cape Cod, apparently. And we're like, okay, well, that's swimming off the itinerary for the afternoon. Which beach was that, by the way? Can you tell us? Yeah, um, that was well worth the $300, wasn't it? Just for the spotting service alone. Uh, it was like, I mean, it paid for itself in that, like whatever. <laughs> so we had this fun thing and we're wedged into this little dun 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 kind of thing. And I, you're trying to take your phone out without it being flung out of your hands and lost forever. So you lift it up and like, and then take a picture of, your, you know, the hotel or the landscape, but and it was just this great, fun little trip that we did because it was a terrible holiday in many ways because it was a massive bout of nausea. And then in the middle, there was a hurricane, uh, genuinely a hurricane hit uh, Cape Cod, and we were in a car because we didn't take the warning seriously, and the car began to spin on the road. Oh my god! Oh, it was it was, an, it was a ludicrous holiday. But the high point of which was we took a little biplane around and took a spin around and this, and I found the receipt for that, and I've just put it back in the drawer, knowing that in a year's time, as I'm going to next year's receipts I'll find that receipt again and go oh okay cool <laughs> that's lovely so some of these things are that like whatever I felt there were things that you would because I did think abstractly I should put like Frank Matcham theatres or the Irish language or these things into that have big signal but they're just too abstract and no one's gonna knock them all down or, or the language will survive you know but they're kind of so I've gone very personal and gone very small lovely but triggering in a good way There we are, the brilliant Dara O'Brien, a man of very few words, completely reorganising the way I do this podcast and finally setting a few rules. Thank heavens for that. Time to relax a bit with the brilliant Holby City star, and much more, of course, Catherine Russell, with a tale of requited love. So, I was doing a television series called Chelworth, with the lovely Gemma Jones playing my mum and Peter Jeffries playing my dad. And we'd already filmed two episodes of it. And in the third episode was the good old bad old days. I'm sure you remember where you had things like read-throughs. Long, long time ago. So we're having a read-through of three and four. And there was a young actor there. I was 23 at the time who had been uh, cast to play an ex-boyfriend for just having two or three scenes. And I felt a bit sorry for him because I thought, oh, that's it must be a bit weird because everybody knows each other. We've already filmed. So I went up and said, oh, hello, hello. This must be a bit strange coming down as we all know each other, but welcome, welcome. He said, don't worry. I've just come downstairs from a far worthier piece. <laughs> and I thought, I hate you. And his name I was introduced to was Otto Jarman. So I rushed home, wrote in my journal at the time, 
I hate this actor called Otto. What a stupid name. Must be made up. Otto Charman. This is going to be torture. <laughs> well, within about three days, I was writing, I love Otto Charman. He's so gorgeous and funny and really... Anyway, turns out it was a made-up name. Hey. His name is Richard Holmes. And still on the same job, <laughs> we got married in secret. Good Lord. Ten weeks after we first kissed. And we didn't tell anybody. And um, what had happened was we were staying in the hotel while I was still filming this <laughs> this TV series. <laughs> and I got a pregnancy scare. And in those good old bad old days, pregnancy tests, you know, you peed on the what's it like you do now. But it took all night mm. for the result to come through. It wasn't the three minute thing. And we went out and we discussed what we would do if I was pregnant and we thought we'd probably keep it because we were madly in love. This, by the way, was only six weeks into um, after being kids. Good Lord. Woke up the next morning, looked at it, and it was negative. Oh. And rather than both going, oh, thank Christ for that, we both burst into tears. So from six weeks on, we were trying for a baby. How mad is that? Anyway, decided to get married in secret got on the, on the back of his motorbike, how cool and crazy, drove down to Brixton Registry Office, had no witnesses. I mean, how, it was literally not thinking. I was 23, 25. So we persuaded, <laughs> we persuaded people from the street eventually. I mean, some people were like, well, what's in it for me? But eventually we got um, a man who was a scaffolder but was helping the florist man outside. He agreed to come and be a witness. <laughs> and a man from the shop who insisted on going home and get changes to his suit, which we begged him not to because we'd be late, but he did. He was a witness. Anyway, we stood there with this man marrying us who was obviously quite cross because we kept giggling. Every time it came to the word solemn, he would sort of solemn, that solemn vow, solemn. And we were giggling. And then he said, and have you got the ring? No, no ring. Hadn't thought about a ring. Oh, no. The last and only time in my career ever, I think, I had worn home my character's ring, which was a Russian wedding ring, one of those ones with three. I don't even like the thing. And I went, oh, yes, 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 here, here it is. It's such a trite <laughs> thinking I was taking it off without the man seeing I'm sure he was seeing I'm sure he thought this was doomed <laughs> passed it over to Richard and put the wedding ring on my finger went back to the BBC and, at the, and still nobody knew we were married but at the end of the job I said can I can I have that ring of my characters please can I have my character ring and they said yes £14.50 <laughs> so my wedding ring was £14.50 from the BBC the good old BBC to the rescue again. Cheap as ever, of course, but full of quality. Right, we can't have a compilation show without including something from the fourth member of the League of Gentlemen. Yes, there are four of them. Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton, of course. Mark Gatiss, naturally. And the one you never saw, but who's as much a member as the rest of them, if not more so. Here is Jeremy Dyson talking about the little comedy group that became a national sensation. Oh, I can imagine. To, uh, well, just the slow realisation. And I suppose it was slow that, oh, my God, I've written some comedy that seems to be universal. Yeah, that it, had an, it had that appeal. And I would. none of us ever thought that. We never mm. thought that we... Again, it, it's easy to sort of go numb to it or take it for granted, I guess, when you've been doing it for a number of years. But um, at the time, our only ambition was to have a, a TV show 
something that would go on BBC Two, you know, in that slot. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we ever really thought about having more than one series because that in itself seemed like the impossible holy grail, you know. And we certainly didn't think about it having any level of popularity because we thought it was too niche. So I, I think we didn't talk about it, but I think we just assumed that it would be a niche late night thing that would appeal to people like us. But, yes. that, but we knew that that was a niche audience, you know, it wasn't. <laughs> so that when you were on that tour, when you were suddenly in venues that were not niche and playing to a strange version of a mainstream audience... It was so far from any of our expectations that we definitely spent most of that tour pinching ourselves. Jeremy Dyson. Isn't that a lovely insight into what it feels like to unexpectedly become a hit? My next guest knows that feeling very well, as Toya Wilcox was a hit as an actress when she was very young and then became a pop star and an author. She's had eight top 40 singles, released over 20 albums, written two books and appeared in over 40 stage plays and 10 feature films. But as is often the way with my time capsule, that's not what we talked about. We talked about her mother, which turned out to be far more interesting. Oh, I don't know where to start. I have to write the play, the book and the film about this relationship. You should. Well, I never knew. I never knew until December the 3rd last year when Ancestry.com contacted me to tell me some press cuttings they found. Is my mother very lightly at the age of 14 witnessed her father murder her mother? There, there was a court case. It was a crime of punishment. My mother was born out of wedlock, which is why she was such a snob and kind of refused to acknowledge anything um, in the working class system. She was very, very complex, really complex. And she was living a character she created so no one could discover her history. And she was just driven mad by her history. And uh, she had a chaperone. She was a dancer, a professional dancer. And she had a female chaperone who even shared a bedroom with her. My mother was never allowed to be alone, probably because her father only went to prison for three months. He escaped the gallows. He was free. And I think the chaperone was with her right right up until she married my dad to make sure the father never got near her. Good Lord. And she had to live this lie. My mum could hardly write. She could hardly read. But she was a trained dancer. Uh, She opened for Max Wall on tour. Very complex woman. And I think when my father came along and proposed to her, and my father was wealthy, she saw a way of escaping her past um, and closing the doors on that. So my relationship with my mother was one of the most destructive, negative things I've ever experienced in my life. It was never a positive experience um, because she would always do the opposite. And we feel she did that because if she showed me love or she showed me what she desired, I would die. Uh, So she always did the opposite, mm. almost to the point of killing me at times. So when you found this this incredible thing out, only recently, did you suddenly reevaluate the whole thing? God, yeah, I I was, I mean, I had to be with counsellors in the room when they told me they, they were so concerned about how it would affect me, and it did affect me. 
because it was literally like a, a jigsaw puzzle falling out of the sky of my past and just all falling into place. I suddenly understood this extraordinary past. So did my brother, my sister, my husband. I mean, all of the family spouses suddenly realised why my mother would destroy every moment. It's because she felt if she didn't, that we would be in danger. Mm. Yes, you can't be happy. You can't be happy. I just wish she could have told us while she was alive because we would have got her a therapist. We'd have done therapy with her. We'd have been kinder to her rather than exasperated by her. She <clears throat> refused medical attention. She refused medical help. She was destructive on every level to her physical body and her mental health. And yours. But I think she made me who and what I am. And my God, I am tough. She certainly is. The amazing Toya Wilcox. Right, time to hear from my last guest in this compilation, Harry Hill. Again, not talking about his career, but about his son from his first marriage, Gary. Some of you may find this disturbing. At least you ought to. Well, the first one is my adopted son, Gary. My son, Gary, from my first marriage, I should say, mm -hmm. which, who is um, my ventriloquist's dummy. Yes. Don't, I have to say that quietly because I don't want him to hear. <laughs> Gary, he's here. Right? He's, he's in this room. Is he there? Oh. He's, he's good. He's keeping very quiet. Yeah. Hello, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's over there. But he... Um, it's a funny thing. I'm not, obviously, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really a ventriloquist. No. <laughs> You're so kind. <laughs> I have Gary. I'm going to go and get him, actually, because it's pretty easier to talk about him when he's with me. Yes. Excuse me for one moment. Certainly. Start whistling. <laughs> uh, Gary, come on out. You didn't really. I'm too shy to be on a podcast. Nonsense, Gary. Come on, this could be your big break. It's, it's Mike, Michael Fenton Stevens. Hello, Michael. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> You're looking very well. You are very rosy cheeked. Well, I've just painted him up. Oh, uh, actually, yeah, because he was doing. Um, you tell uh, Mike what you were doing before. Well, I was doing the Chris Whitty impressions. He would have. Um, <laughs> I had like a bald head, didn't I, Daddy? Yes, you did have a bald head, Gary. And I used to do my Chris Whitty impression. Do a bit for us now, mm. uh, Gary. Uh, yeah, my name's Chris Whitty. Uh, shut your cob, back off, and wash your dirty hands, you bastard. That's uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm planning that Gary would take over the business from me. Well, you must feel threatened by him because the talent pours out of him. Yeah, well, he's not. I'm very shy. I know you are, Gary. <laughs> he's naturally, he's not a natural comedian, but we're working on it, aren't we, Gary? Yes, I am. We are working on it, Daddy. Why don't you do one of your jokes? <laughs> he's, he's bought some jokes. He bought some jokes from oh, one really? of the joke writers. Mm -hmm. I see, Daddy. Yes, that, Gary. What's, um... <sighs> My... Sister, your sister Gary, yes, had two of her fingers removed and is unable to use the uh, controlled thing for a, a, a video game. Really, Gary? Yes, she's inconsolable. <laughs> when she was, when he broke the, when the surgeon broke How much did that joke cost? <laughs> <laughs>
Are there more? I see, Daddy. Yes, Gary. Don't do that noise, Gary. It'll limit your appeal. Um, I, uh, what, Gary? I, um, my friend bought a uh, Louis the Fourteenth bed the other day. Really, Gary? Reproduction? I don't know what he's planning to use it for. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Hill. There's no one like him. And that brings to an end this compilation of some of the best bits of my time capsule from 2022. I hope you enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it so much, I think I might make another episode. Well, we've got a hundred guests to choose from, we might as well. Until then, thank you for listening to this and any other episodes of my time capsule. From our very first guest, Stephen Fry, to, well... Who knows who's yet to come? Or what they'll choose to put in a time capsule? We'll find out in the new year once 2022 is over. Hasn't it gone in a flash? Unlike my jokes, of course, which seem to take forever. Still, at least I kept my last year's New Year's resolution. I promised myself I'd read more, so now I don't watch a box set or stream a series on iPlayer without first turning on the subtitles. Sorted. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.